side building for that baptism. So today we're starting a brand new series, um, and I'll tell you how this series began, at least how it began in my mind. Uh, many of you guys know that, um, that I went on an Israel trip back in May, and it was supposed to end like June 4th for me, and then my wife and I got COVID over there, had to stay like nine extra days, and so uh, I was thinking on what to preach on this coming fall, and I knew it would be something out of the Gospels, and I was excited for that, but I was trying to think of like, I, I can't walk through an entire gospel. How, about, how am I going to break this thing down? So I decided to go with Luke and teach the second half of the book of Luke. And, uh, and I started thinking about how it related to the series that were, um, or the, I'm sorry, the trip that we were doing in Israel. And our trip in Israel really kind of followed the pathway of Jesus going to Jerusalem. And uh, so I thought I would try to you know, start in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We'd start there, and we would kind of chart our way through um, the gospel of Luke. And whenever I came to a location um, geographically that we had visited um, there in Israel, that I'd bring some pictures and some insights from our trip. And so um, that'll be what you hear throughout the series, um, some of those insights and some of those pictures as well. And, uh, and it was just really eye-opening seeing um, it, it all play out. Like when you're reading a gospel and you realize, I was just there last week, you know, and in that one spot that's mentioned here in this passage, it's really amazing to think about that as it relates to um, uh, this series that we're diving into uh, here in Luke. So um, uh, that's going to be our series from now until really about Christmas time. And uh, so we'll start in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and we'll go to the end of the book. And uh, there's going to be big sections each week, so just to prepare you. It's going to be like lots of summaries, and we'll focus in on certain stories as we go through the series. And uh, so in the book of Luke, Jesus is interacting with his disciples as they go towards Jerusalem. And Luke teaches us something about what it means to be a disciple. And so these disciples are, are they're literally following Jesus along as, he, as he's teaching them and shepherding them as he heads towards Jerusalem, the place that will be his suffering and also his death, but also his resurrection. And so here's my hope as we start this series. And it's very simple. It's that you would know Jesus. And I mean that for the believer and also the unbeliever. Because so often we, I think we, we talk about Jesus, we talk about the concept of the gospel, or we talk about, of course, the scriptures, but we forget sometimes that the whole point is for you to know him, like in a relational way, and not just see him as just some far-off distant being. And so if you're not yet a follower of Christ, my hope in the series is that you come to know him, that you surrender your life to him, that you recognize this is why you were created was to be in relationship to him, and that you would submit yourself to that and surrender yourself to that and recognize that true life is found in that relationship with him. And also, if you're a believer, that you would come to see this Jesus, this, this, this God that you worship, is someone that can be known in an intimate way, in a personal way. And I know that's very simple, but I think we, we, we miss that at times as we think about um, listen, I love theology. I love talking about and debating things. I love all that. And it's amazing to me how often I'll hear people say, yeah, we're talking about this in our Bible study. And it's great. It's a great discussion. But it's just some, like, theological question everyone's curious about. And it's a reminder for me to, like, you know, at times there's a place for that. There's a time for that. 
But we also just need to know him and get to know him. And so we're spending time in, in a gospel because I've been here for, I think, 17 plus years. Do you know I've only taught through, this is my second time teaching through, teaching through a gospel here at the Outback. We did John several years ago. This is going to be the book of Luke. And I'm convicted by that because I'm like, here we are talking about Jesus, and yet we rarely ever just put the stories of Jesus before you and say, let's get to know him in a, in a personal way. So this is what our purpose is for this series as we walk through the book of Luke uh, together. Now, um, again, uh, this is a transition point in the book of Luke, and Christ has been talking about his coming death with his disciples, and now his journey takes on this urgency, and you're going to hear a phrase that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And uh, throughout, throughout this part of the story, we're going to see fewer miracles, shorter teachings, fewer crowds as he moves towards Jerusalem with his disciples. So here, I want to put up a map for you on the screen. This is a map of Israel back then. This is a map of Galilee and also Samaria. You'll see Samaria right there in the middle, and Galilee's to the north. And, uh, and so our trip to Israel, we stayed mainly in Galilee at first, Capernaum, Chorazin, that area, Bethsaida. We stayed there for a few nights. We kind of made our way down south along the Jordan River throughout the rest of the trip. And you see that middle section, Samaria, is a really significant section of the nation of Israel in their history. And here's why. Because up until this point in his ministry, his ministry has been primarily in the Galilee region up at the top. 80% of his ministry has been up there in the northern part of the, of the, around the Sea of Galilee. And there was conflict and tension that go, that, that, between the Jews and Samaritans dating back hundreds of years. And so here's a little bit of a story about that. So after King Solomon dies in 930 B.C., the kingdom is split into two, north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the Assyrians come in 722 B.C., and they attack the north. And the Babylonians attack the south in 586 B.C., and some Jews are taken captive, and then some stay in these regions. Then Gentiles, non-Jews, begin populating the region there in the north and there in the middle of the country. And the Jews that are left behind begin intermarrying with these Gentile pagan worshipers. And they're adopting the idols of the Gentile people. And their descendants now are now known as Samaritans. And they would mix worship with, of God, but also worship with their pagan idols. And later when Jews would return to Jerusalem to rebuild the, 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 the temple and also the city of Jerusalem, the Samaritans came against them um, in their attempt to do that. And so ever since then, there was like a lot of tension between the Samaritans and also the Jewish people. So because of the conflict, the Jews wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They would go around it. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. They would go the long way around Samaria to avoid the Samaritans. Now look in Luke chapter 9. Verse 51, pick up there, where it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. So why is he sending people ahead to go make preparation? Well, um, this would be to, like, arrange housing and a place to stay. And so he's saying, go ahead and make 
arrangements for us as we come through this area. But it says when they arrived, the people reject him because it says his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, why is that? Now, Jesus, the, the Jews saw Jerusalem as the place of worship, but the, the Samaritans saw their region called Mount Gerizim in their region as the place of true worship. So because of this worship conflict, they're less likely to be hospitable to someone who's going to Jerusalem to, to worship at the temple area. And so when, and when James and John see this rejection, they get angry. And I love their question. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down on these people and consume them at this moment? You, you just say the word and, and we'll do it as if they have some like miraculous power over the elements. So then Jesus turns and rebukes his disciples for saying such a thing because they obviously don't get his mission because he's not coming to compel people by making threats. Jesus isn't coming and saying, you know, believe in me or else I'm going to call down fire and destroy you right now. He's not, he's not, that's not his mission. He's coming to die for these people, even the Samaritans. Later over in, in, Acts, in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans would be some of the first ones to embrace the gospel. And uh, so later on in the journey, Jesus, I'm going to summarize for you a big section here. Jesus sends out 72 people, two by two, into all the towns he's about to go to. And he tells them to heal the sick. And he says, tell them this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But then he says, some are going to reject you. And if they do... I want you to symbolically wipe the dust off your feet as you leave those towns. It's a symbolic gesture of judgment saying, you know, kind of like we're, we're going to move on now. We're not going to stay here any longer and keep on preaching to deaf ears. We're going to move on to the next town. And so Jesus tells them to do this. And then Jesus now turns his attention to all the cities he's been ministering to, but they've also rejected him. So skip all the way down to Luke chapter 10 starting in verse 13, where it says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So who are these cities he's talking about? Well, these are some of the first cities that Jesus went to in which he ministered, and after all of the teachings, I said that he spent 80% of his time in the Gospels, in these northern cities around the Sea of Galilee. He spent most of his time in those regions, but the people didn't believe. They rejected him in the place he spent most of his time. And I've got a few pictures I want to show you of, uh, of this area. So um, the first picture you're going to see is just the entrance. We go into, um, uh, it's, it's actually labeled there at the gate, the Capernaum, the town of Jesus. And there's a little um, uh, building there. Um, that was not there back when Jesus was there, just so you know. And uh, neither was the gate. And, um, and so we walk into this area. That's the entrance as you go into this. And it, and it has like, it says the town of Jesus. This is where he spent a lot of his time in this little region right here along the Sea of Galilee. And then my next picture, I think, is a picture of a, the ruins of a synagogue right there in Capernaum. And what's amazing about this is we walk in with our group, and our tour guide, 
is just saying, he's like, this, this synagogue has been here for, you know, centuries. And they believe this is the synagogue where Jesus would have preached and taught right there in Capernaum. And so most of us think of these locations like he's just always in a boat somewhere. He's always on the beach somewhere just teaching people informally. But Jesus would go into the synagogues in these regions, and he would preach, and he would teach. And it's, it's fascinating to be in this spot, and you go, he was in this room teaching people and announcing the kingdom of God right there on the beaches of Capernaum. And I thought this next picture was kind of interesting. This, you, you can kind of see this on the floor. If you go to my next slide, um, we asked our tour guide, what is this little carving in the floor of the synagogue? And he said, it's actually a game. So what you see, they have evidence in this little synagogue where families would come in. There was no such thing as like children's church back then. And so they would have a family there. And, and over time, these little kids are playing a game and they begin to carve out a game on the floor of the synagogue um, while someone's teaching. So here's the deal. You play games in church. They played games in church way back then, or in synagogue. And uh, I wonder if anyone did that while Christ was preaching, by the way. Like, this guy is kind of boring. Let's play a game, you know. Um, so that's a game on the floor of the synagogue there in Capernaum. And then the next picture is really fascinating. This, this next picture is what they believe to be right there in Capernaum. You could literally throw, almost throw a rock from the place I just showed you to this. It, it actually was a house then this became a church. So most archaeologists believe, right there in Capernaum, that this was the house of Peter, right there in the little small town of Capernaum. And they believe that because there's evidence, strong evidence, that it was a house, and then it got added onto as the church there began to grow, and it became a church building in the early church, back in the early days. And as they uncovered this, this find, they found plaster, like, in that little inner circle area. And they even found, like, the names of, like, like praises to God and, and actually mentions of Jesus in the plaster walls of this house. Now, I didn't say, like, Jesus was here. It wasn't anything like that. But it was things that were, like, celebrating, you know, and praising God and that's why they believe this was like an early um, house that it became a church. And there's strong evidence to say this was maybe the house of Peter, where he lived and where the early church met, right there in Capernaum. So I want you to hear all that and understand that this city, Capernaum, where Jesus spent a lot of time and had a lot of relationships, he's now in Luke chapter 10 calling down curses on this place and saying, you didn't believe. Like you had a chance to repent and believe and you don't believe. So understand that these are not some far-off distant places he's talking about. These are places he has been. He has spent time there. He's invested um, literally sweat and tears into this, these places. And these people don't believe he is who he said he was. So Jesus brings up two rebellious cities from the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon. And he says if he had done these works in those towns, they would have repented. And in verse 15, he calls out Capernaum directly as if to say, you think you're special? You think you're owed heaven? And we see here that more privilege leads to more responsibility. So the more revelation someone has received, 
leads to us being more and more responsible. It's true for us as well. So in verse 16, Jesus, of course, uh, I think is making the connection that the disciples are kind of taking offense at the rejection. And Jesus is reminding them, he's saying, listen, if they reject you, they're rejecting the message, they're rejecting me. Don't take it personally. They're rejecting me ultimately. Then skip down to verse 25 of Luke 10 where it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this lawyer stands up, and it says he's trying to test Jesus. This man's not asking a a question from a place of faith. He's not truly wanting to understand. And he's doing it to test Jesus. But as Jesus often does, Jesus answers it by asking a question, like a good politician would do. Well, let me answer that by asking you this. You know, that's what Jesus does. And he asks the man what is written in the law. And the man answers. He says, well, basically, love God, love your neighbor. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, he knows this man who's a lawyer, understands the law backwards and forwards. And so he sends the the man back to what he already knows, the law. And he says, what's the law say? Now, why does Jesus do that? Well, he wants the man to wrestle with what the law really says. Because if this man truly understood the purpose of the law, then he would say, well, the law says to love God, love my neighbor. But of course, no one can do that perfectly. And that might be why I need a savior. That's the logical conclusion that we we should draw from what the law says. So the law doesn't save us, but it shows us that we need to be saved. There's no real conversion without real conviction about our sin. And the law is meant to convict us that we're sinners in need of a savior. So how do we know this man doesn't really understand what the law is really for? We can understand that by his next statement in verse 29 where it says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, meaning make himself right with God, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he he should, of course, realize in this moment that he, you know, he's failed to live up to the law perfectly. He's failed to love his neighbor and and to love God with his whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. His follow-up question should be, well, well, how can I find eternal life if I have failed to love God and to love my neighbor perfectly? That should be his follow-up question. But what does he say? He says, instead of wanting Jesus to justify him, meaning Jesus to make him right with God, he wants to justify himself. And that's why he asked the question, who's my neighbor? Instead of seeing everyone as his neighbor, he wants to define neighbor as narrowly as possible. So look down at verse 30 where it says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is a famous parable Jesus is about to tell in this context. And when you see this road, the road that goes from Jerusalem down into Jericho, you'll see why this may have happened on this road. So this is the road they're talking about. And in, in the valley there, you see um, Jerusalem sits up on a high plateau. And if you're, as you're going east towards Jericho, it goes down, down, down into this deep valley. And there's lots of um, caves and rocks. It's a really rough, dangerous uh, stretch of, of area. 
This is a, 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 a this was a trade route back then. And back then it was very dangerous. It was 17 miles long, and it goes down more than 3,000 feet into a valley. And there are caves along the way. And so when Jesus says a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's the part of the movie where the scary music begins to play. Because it's like saying a man walked alone into a dark alley in our context. So the audience hearing this would know something bad is about to happen in the story. Now look at verse 31 where it says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, if you're beaten up and laying in a ditch, and you get to choose who the next person to come down the road, who they might be, you might choose a priest, right? Like, who's the most likely person to help me in my time of need? Maybe someone who understands God's law, that we should help those in need. Someone who's compassionate, like a priest. But the priest passes by on the other side. Then comes a Levite, and it's the same thing, same response. Then look at verse 33 where it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, now listen, what is this Jewish audience expecting of the Samaritan? We already know Jews didn't like Samaritans. We know the disciples were trying to call fire down upon them, those Samaritans. So what is Jesus going to say now about the Samaritan? I mean, he's going to, like, beat him up even worse, right? Check his pockets for money, maybe even kill him, right? And so when a Jew hears a Samaritan has entered the story, for us, it might be like hearing a religious terrorist has entered the narrative. So what's this person going to do, the Samaritan? We'll look at the next phrase. It says, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil, oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. So, wait a minute. So for the Jewish person hearing the story, the Samaritan is the good guy in the story? That's not how it's supposed to go. We know the story as the good Samaritan, but those two words didn't fit together back in that context in their world. So what does this man do in the story? He, he may have shredded his own clothes to bind the wounds of the man laying over in the ditch. Wine would have disinfected the cuts, and then oil would have soothed his injuries. The man even offers him his animal and takes him to an inn and says, I'm going to pay for his treatment. I'm also going to come back and get him when I return. So this Samaritan offers him everything to this man laying in the ditch. And then look at verse 36 where it says, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, so you go and do likewise. Do you realize that the man, the lawyer, he can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan. He says, okay, the guy who showed him mercy. I get it. I understand the story. So whenever we hear the story, 
we, we like to think that we would be like the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, not the other two people, right? Uh, many years ago, I was working at a church in Arlington. I was an intern up there at a church. And I was in college, also in seminary at the time. And, uh, and it was this crazy situation that happened where we're having a meeting. We're going to have a meeting during the week with the youth pastor and also the junior high pastor up at the church. And I'm kind of running late for the meeting. So I'm going on this one route I know that get there quickly. And I'm not speeding by very much. And I'm driving to the church and, uh, and trying to be on time. And I see on the side of the road, there is this distraught woman and a small child. And it looks like she has a flat tire. And she's trying to figure out how to change this tire on her own. And she looks like she's on the phone, like she's trying to get help. And inside my head, I thought, I should probably stop and help her. And then something else came in my head that said, but she's probably a serial killer. And so maybe I shouldn't. Guys, I have dark thoughts sometimes, okay? It just, it's, it's, it happens. And so I, I just kept on driving, and I did not help the woman in need, okay? And so I get to the church. I'm the first one there for this meeting, and I'm proud of myself for being on time, right? And, uh, and then a few minutes later, in walks the high school youth pastor. And he goes, man, he goes, I just, I feel awful. Like, I just passed this woman on the road with a small child and a flat tire. And he goes, and I didn't stop and help her. And I was like, yeah, I, I saw her too, actually. And I didn't help her either. So, but you know, we're, we're both on time for the meeting. That's good, right? And so he's like, yeah, you're right. And so we're waiting for the junior high pastor to show up. And now it's, time is passing, and it's been like 10, 15, 20. We're like, where is our, the junior high youth pastor? They're always late, those junior high youth pastors. And, uh, and so he comes walking in, and, and he goes, hey, guys, I'm sorry I'm late. There was this lady on the side of the road with a flat tire, and I stopped to help her change her tire. And now me and the other guy feel like, like this big. We're like down here like... We are the most awful human beings ever invented, right? And, uh, and so this is like, I had this moment of like, oh my gosh, we just experienced the Good Samaritan story in real life, and I wasn't the Good Samaritan. Like, I failed the test miserably, right, in real life. And it was very convicting to me. And I know as you hear the, the story in the scriptures, and also hear even my own personal story about that, you know, we don't think we're like that, but we are. We'll just pass by someone in need and go, hey, I'm not going to help this person. But listen, but don't think of the story that Jesus tells as just being about people that are on the side of the road. It's not just about that. It's more than that. Because what does he teach by sharing this story? Well, what is the man's original question? Well, the question is, who's my neighbor? He wants to define neighbor as narrowly as possible. He's asking, how can I do as little as possible and still get eternal life? Well, this shows, I think, two issues, two problems. Number one, he believes that eternal life can be earned, which it cannot. But it also shows he doesn't truly understand the law. Because the law is summarized like this. Love God, love your neighbor. You might say it like this. Someone who truly loves God does not set limits on who is their neighbor. And so instead of asking who am I required to love? He, he should be asking, how can I be 
a loving neighbor to anyone who crosses my path. So this man comes to Jesus asking a question, but then Jesus turns around. The man asks, who's my neighbor? But then Jesus asks, which one of these in the story was a neighbor? Go and be like that person. You know, we tend to set great limits on who we should show love to. We do it for close friends. We do it for people that we like, people that are like us, people that we connect with somehow. And it is good for us, I think, to evaluate how we compare to the three men who pass by and, 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 and by this helpless man. But we also have to see ourselves as the helpless man in the story. That's how I've got to see myself. I've got to see myself as the helpless person in the story because spiritually speaking, we look a lot more like the guy laying in the ditch than the good Samaritan most of the time. This man is helpless by the side of the road and he will die without someone coming to rescue him. That's a picture of the gospel because Jesus is the true good Samaritan. He comes to us when we're dead in our trespasses and he pays the price so that we can be healed of our sins. And it's only whenever you and I recognize that, that we are set free and released to be able to love in the way that Jesus describes here. 